there has been and will always be opposition against Christ and all that he stands for as our creator, our authority, and judge. He is God, true God, and there is no way to have a saving relationship with the only God in our universe except through him. And Christ tells us that we will meet resistance and even commands us not to be surprised in 1 John 3.13 when we are hated by the world and that the world has hated him first because he is a bright, shining light in the darkness. Those who have been saved know that we used to contribute to that resistance and that darkness. And though our hearts were spiritually dead, they were very active in resistance and in rebellion towards both Christ in his person and in his work. One of the greatest ways that Christ discipled his followers during his earthly ministry in a way that his ongoing discipleship impacts our lives is by providing real life examples of how he defended his person and his work in the ministry. Just as Christ's example of compassion last week can fuel our hearts to be more compassionate. He also can serve as our example in responding to doubters and critics, and it can strengthen us to be equipped in how to respond. And the passages that we're going to cover over the next few Sundays, starting now and as we head today into chapter 2, all the way through chapter 2 in the first part of chapter 3, Christ is going to defend his ministry. Our world is filled with doubters and skeptics, and we find them in our workplaces, in our schools, and some even in our own families, extended and even in immediate family. When you face opposition, what or who do you look to for guidance? Is there a framework of thinking that can help you to be prepared? Does the example of Christ and how he responded to opposition, does that even enter into the picture? Is that even a thought? Well, let's read Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 to see how our Lord can disciple us to follow him more effectively. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 a full passage, this is what it says, starting in verse 1. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. Being unable to get to him, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk? 
but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is a very large passage, all one thought in, in John Mark's mind, okay, as he was led by the Holy Spirit to record it for us. And we need to see how it all fits together. And to cover this much ground, we're going to break our text down into four bite-sized pieces that are already in your outline for you. It's the context, the controversy, the clarification, and the conclusion. And these four ministry factors provide a framework for you and I to be mindful of as we minister in a world of opposition. The title of our message is Facing His Critics. And these four ministry factors remain consistent. And though we might see some variations of each, the reality is at the core they stay the same and can be applied to each ministry situation and setting that we're involved in as well. There is always a ministry context or a setting. And there is always controversy. And by that I mean the way that people will respond when the truth is spoken. The way that especially Christ's critics will respond when his truth is presented. Then there is clarification, which is the wisdom that promotes truth and understanding, and it helps people to gain perspective. And finally, there's a conclusion or a ministry result, and depending on the progress that gets made, it can be either positive or negative. This is a practical framework that can assist you when ministering to unsaved family, coworkers, uh, fellow students, Friends, and hopefully as we progress in our passage, we can learn and see how understanding each factor can contribute to greater ministry effectiveness. Let's start with the first ministry factor to be mindful of when facing Christ's critics, which is the ministry context. Every ministry context Jesus ministered in was unique in the sense that it involved a different setting, different people, oftentimes different forms of opposition. And you'll notice in this ministry context, there's five things that I want to draw your attention to. Five verses, five subpoints. We have the city, the crowd, the cripple, the challenge, and the comment. And you'll see that I heavily favored the letter C in, in my outline. And you've probably noticed by now that I do enjoy alliterations. Uh, it's just one of the way, ways that I have fun just in, in terms of preparation and um, again, can't impose my alliteration on the text. It's got to accurately reflect it. And I believe that, that it does. But let's start with the city. Verse 1 says that Jesus returns to Capernaum. And as we learned in chapter 1, Capernaum became Jesus' residence after he left Nazareth. And most likely, this was the place that the first four disciples in whom Jesus called, it's where they lived. And Mark 1.39 taught us that Jesus, after he had just healed the whole city... He then shared that he had a desire to go preach in the nearby towns. And he taught in all their synagogues throughout the region of Galilee. And now, according to our opening verse of chapter 2, several days have passed. He's completed the preaching tour throughout Galilee, and he now returns to Capernaum. 
perhaps so that the four disciples who were with him could uh, see their families. But one thing's for certain is that this ministry, this, this divine appointment that he had in this account today was on his schedule. The end of verse 1 also indicates that it didn't take long before people had learned that Jesus returned. And this explains the crowd that Jesus encounters in verse 2, which says, And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. Crowds play an important role in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, crowds are mentioned more than 40 times uh, before we, we get to Mark chapter 10. Crowds were the audiences to whom Jesus taught. Crowds were also reflective of the people that Jesus uh, directed his compassion toward. But Mark never describes crowds turning to Jesus in repentance and belief, as the gospel requires in Mark 1.15. As one commentator shares, in respect to the understanding to understanding and faith, crowds generally demonstrate passivity. And even their precipitous reduction following Jesus' teaching on suffering at Caesarea Philippi, they demonstrate even greater fickleness. The single most common attribute of crowds in Mark is that they obstruct access to Jesus. Thus, despite Jesus' popularity, crowds are not a measure of success in Mark. They constitute outsiders who stand either in ambivalence or opposition to Jesus. And we see the same effect in our culture today. We do. Sometimes we tend to think that ministry success is related to the crowds that are represented. That there are large ministries with a, a, a world of different programs within them. Yet if they're divorced of the gospel, the fundamental truths of the gospel and a commitment and, and don't have a high view of God and a high view of his word, there's compromise that's being made in the ministry. In chapter 1, verse 33, after Jesus' original visit, it says that the entire city had gathered outside the door. And so after healing everyone on the first, uh, first time that he was there, we can safely presume that the crowd that he goes back to and finds this time is probably less because those who had gotten the physical healing that they desired got what they needed and probably had no reason to come back. We can also safely presume that some were drawn back because of his teaching. And the end of verse 2 indicates this when it says, and he was speaking the word to them. Whether it was one person or 1,000 people, the Lord Jesus Christ continued to be faithful to his message. And Mark occasionally describes Jesus' message simply as the word as he does here. And again in Mark 4.33, the word summarizes Christ pointing people to himself as the Messiah and the message of the gospel of God. In verses 3 and 4, they reveal more about the ministry context and how the crowd served as a physical obstacle to the cripple and the challenge that this crowd presented. It says, And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and being unable to get him to him, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Houses in Jesus' day 
had a, a traditional layout in which the, the, the house would have been built around a courtyard. And there was access and, and steps that usually provided roof access or roof access. I guess it depends which side of the country you're from. All right. And you, you could go up on, on the outside and there was a stone or a timber that projected out from the wall on the outside that would allow a person to go up. And we even know in Peter's house that he had access to this because it says in Acts, and I can't remember where, that he went up to the roof to pray. This technique was known as corbelling. One resource shared that it advoca- it's advocated by most commentators that in this instance, the sticks, the thorn bush, mortar, and earth that comprised the roofing plaster were actually broken up and set aside until an opening was made large enough to let the sick man through. One authority states that the roof could not easily be broken up in this manner, could be easily broken up in this manner, and easily repaired, and that it was often done for the purpose of letting down grain, straw, and other articles. And so this, for us, seems a little bit wild, right? If we just imagine someone digging a hole through the roof right now, that would be pretty crazy experience to consider but this this was common and so these guys were being creative and looking for a way to overcome the challenge that they faced as they were trying to get the crippled man into the presence of Christ and I'm sure the willingness of the four men that helped this crippled man also made an impression on our Lord one commentator shared they would not be put off by the crowd they even vandalized another's property to achieve their end They ignored the protest and judgments of those around them for the sake of their friend. Perhaps he was family, a beloved brother or uncle or father. Maybe he was simply a neighbor with whom they had grown up and played together. Whatever the relationship, they loved him. And whatever happened that day, healing, rejection, whatever. The paralytic was a very rich man because he had something for which some people spend millions and yet never find. God was going to work in his life because his friends loved him. And God is especially pleased to work when there is such sacrificial love. I thought that was a sweet expression. Well, along with great love, his friends had great faith. And they did everything within their power to get their crippled friend into the presence of the one who could heal him. And now we arrive at verse 5. And this is the comment, and you'll notice in your bulletin, or it should have been, is it all caps with underlined? Because it is the heart of the context. That's why it's capitalized and underlined. This is, this is the, 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 the truth that's about to be spoken. It, it says, and this is the comment, verse 5, And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And we just encounter the most significant aspect of our ministry context. The single statement of truth is what's going to trigger the opposition. It's a clear and concise statement representing the direct authority of God through the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive the sinner. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, may God grant you mercy someday. He doesn't say, go confess your sins to a priest to seek forgiveness or absolution. He doesn't express any verbal precondition for the paralytic sins, except he simply states that they're forgiven. 
And he recognizes both the faith of the man and those who accompany them. And he says that exactly. Son, your sins are forgiven. The word translated forgiven can also be translated loosed or let loose. And this is the first mention of faith in Mark's gospel, which significantly links faith to action rather than with knowing or feeling. Faith is first and foremost not knowledge about Jesus, but active trust both in his person and in his power to save a sinner from the penalty and eternal consequences of his or her sin. This man was freed from his bondage of sin and he was unshackled by his faith in Christ. And what is our takeaway? Well, first, to see the power of Christ through the gospel to free another sinner. It never gets old, does it? To, to, to see the reality that, that God is not slumbering. He's always at work. He's drawing people to himself and he's saving people. This man was also healed of his paralysis and he received physical healing along with his spiritual healing. And we're going to share more about this under our third factor when the wording gets debated. A second takeaway for us is the antagonistic nature of the truth about Christ. In any ministry context, if you are a Christian and you're being faithful to the gospel and you're being faithful to the word, you are going to meet opposition when you proclaim the truth. It's inevitable. And keeping this ministry factor in mind when facing Christ's critics allows us to be prepared in advance. Jesus knew it when he was coming into this situation. And contrary to what some might think, it doesn't take omniscience to, to know that we're going to face opposition when we preach the truth, when we share the, 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 the truth with those who are lost. We just need to be mindful of it. When you speak God's truth, expect opposition from Christ's critics. If you're going to share with somebody in this world that Jesus says in John 14, 6, that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, that no one can come to the Father, but through him you are going to face opposition. If you exalt Christ and say that there is salvation and no other name has been given among men under heaven by which a person can be saved, you are going to meet opposition. Psalm 16, verse 4, the sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. Opposition. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The God of Scripture is our creator. He is our authority. He is our judge. Opposition. Marriage. One man, one woman. Opposition. No matter what the ministry context might be, always be ready to face Christ's critics. The Lord Jesus Christ was always met with controversy, which is a good transition and our second factor to keep in mind. The ministry controversy. And here we're going to see the scribes' false thinking followed by their false accusation in verses 6 and 7. Look at verse 6. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. And the word translated reasoning is the Greek word 
dialogo, hang on here, dialogizomai, from which we get our English word to dialogue. And so these scribes were experiencing internal conflict and dialoguing or reasoning in their hearts. Truth always confronts the heart. And eventually we know what's going on in the heart. How, you ask? Because Matthew 12, 34 helps us. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And this is exactly what we know and and how we learn what the scribes are wrestling with when they make their false accusation in verse 7, which says, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The truth that Jesus proclaimed when he said, Son, your sins are forgiven, was blasphemy, according to the scribes, because Jesus was claiming the authority to forgive sins, which they believed only belonged to God. Now, from their perspective, there were a host of scriptures that were in their thinking. Like Psalm 79, 9 came to mind for them, where it says, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Or Numbers 14, 18, which says, The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Or just as King David prayed in Psalm 25, 18, Lord, Look upon my affliction and my trouble and forgive all of my sins. Their logic was actually pretty quite, it was simple. Simple. Only God can forgive sins. He is not God. Therefore, he is blaspheming. And their fatal error was not recognizing who Jesus was, the son of God who has authority to forgive sins. Well, what is our takeaway? Certainly, the fact that God has given us eyes to see, ears to hear, that we, we, that we recognize the reality of who Christ is in our lives, that we, we see and know that he is God, true God, and that he has complete authority to forgive sinners, that he is Savior and Lord, most importantly, that he is our Savior and Lord, that you know him, that you have fully recognized that only Jesus Christ can save you from the penalty of your sins, which warrants eternal separation from a holy and just God, that Jesus Christ is your Lord, and that you are no longer living as a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness for his glory. Second takeaway for us is that we can realize within us our own propensity in the flesh to dismiss truth and contradict the teaching of God's word. And that it's repentance. It's a, it's a daily battle for truth. We get that, right? We get it. It's, today you had to wake up, and all day long we have to battle for truth in the world in which we live. And tomorrow, guess what? You are going to have to wake up, and you're going to start the battle all over again, and we have to wage war with the truth, and it starts with repentance. It starts with a renewal in the mind. Our hearts are deceptive. And though our victory is won in Christ and our eternal destiny is secure in him, there will 
continue to be daily battles for truth and we need to preach the gospel and the wisdom of God's word to our own hearts regularly just as much as we're going to reach out, right? And, and, and witness. We need to be effectively, um, in, in essence, evangelizing our own hearts with, with the gospel. We need to be reminded of our own need of repentance and faith. Third, not only will we face opposition because of Christ, but like Christ, we may be falsely accused by the opposition. The Lord Jesus Christ in our passage, what what, did they just say he was? A blasphemer. And you know what they're going to say next week? They're going to criticize and they're going to insult him and they're going to call him a a, a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And you know what you are going to be, my friend? You're going to be a hypocrite. And you're going to be judgmental. And that's how the world is going to view you. And when you tell others, if you tell Muslims or you tell Buddhists who are serving false gods, you will be falsely accused of being unloving, intolerant, hateful. And our Lord reminds us in Matthew 5.11, which says, Blessed are you, When people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. I want to have your permission to just step on our toes a little bit. And notice what I said, our our toes. My feet are in the mix. As we think about that verse that I just read. How how blessed am I? How blessed are you? When people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. As you think about your life and you lay your life over that verse. How blessed? How blessed are you? Are, Are we making a stand for the truth? We live in the land of the free, home of the brave. We have tremendous religious freedom, a freedom that many other countries do not have. And yes, they face much stronger persecution. And what do we do with our freedom? It gives us greater opportunity to even be more bold. You know, in the public school setting, you know, prayer has already been cast out, right? Can't, can't pray. And as a, as a teacher, um, you, of course, you can still pray for your students. They can't keep you from doing that. Now, verbally, if you do that out loud. But are we willing to... We get so much grace in this country that we don't take advantage of it. We have the opportunities to bring truth to bear, but we don't. I don't. I don't. And I need to. We need to. We, we, we have to make a stand for the truth. And that is going to lead to what we have in our second ministry factor. There'll be some controversy. There'll be some resistance. And I know some of you, when you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in your own families, you met some resistance. As did I when I abandoned the uh, religion of Roman Catholicism 
and started attending to a Bible-based church and then made a decision to go to seminary. I think I've shared the story before, just even with my mom. Never set foot in that church. I will never come to your seminary. I will never come to your graduation. All those things. Resistance. Right? And I know some of you have also faced similar resistance. And we're blessed. We are blessed as a, as a result. But, but, but as we think about our ministry effectiveness as it relates to the proclamation of the truth in the ministry context in which God has given us, are we taking full advantage of the opportunities that we have? Let's rise. Let's rise to the occasion. Let's rise to the occasion. When we're looking at four ministry factors for us to be mindful of when we face Christ's critics. We've considered the ministry context in verses 1 through 5, the ministry controversy in verses 6 and 7, and our third ministry factor is the ministry clarification. And here we get to study Christ's response. How would Christ respond after they just called him a blasphemer and said that only God could forgive sins? Does he drop the bomb on them? Well, I am God. And you need to listen and shut up. I mean, could have said it. But he doesn't. He responds in such a way that we need to take notice of and learn from to be effective in ministry. He needs to provide clarification. And he does so first by asking questions to draw out understanding in verses 8 and 9. And then he provides a challenge in verses 10 and 11. Look at verses 8 and 9. Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say? To the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And so his questions, they really accomplish two purposes. First, the questions make the scribes think about what he's just said and the profound implication. It's the, the implication that comes with the original statement, son, your sins are forgiven. He is saying, I am God. That's what, that is what he's saying. And his questions buy them time to think. Second, his questions set them up so that they either have to deny the miracle that is about to take place or come to terms with the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is truly God. And this is effective evangelism and witnessing. Raise your hand again. I've asked before, who are my avid fishermen? Who are my people who've gone fishing before? Come on, even just one time, you can raise your hand. Come on, let me see them, loud and proud. And it's amazing how easily, how easy fishing is, correct? I mean, you just go out. I mean, you got to have the pole on the line, and you, maybe you're in the boat, and you, as soon as you throw your pole out into the water, I don't know how the fish know this and how God wired them, but the fish immediately just start jumping into the boat how do they know to even do that? It's just amazing. Those of you who haven't been fishing, I mean, you, you, you don't know what you're missing. It's, it's miraculous. No. No, that's not how it works. It, it actually takes great patience. And it requires proper technique. And fishing for men requires great patience and asking the right questions. And the Lord fished with questions. This is how he drew out understanding. 
from those who did not believe. And that's also the same teaching technique and discipleship technique that he employed with his own disciples. And since we're in Mark, let's go ahead and flip a few pages forward. Or if you have an electronic version, go to Mark chapter 8. I want to see an example. We'll just look at one of how Jesus asked questions and how he used them effectively in his evangelism as well as in his ongoing discipleship. Mark chapter 8, verses 14 through 21, is Jesus with his disciples. And let's just count the question as, the questions that he uses as we read the account together. Starting in verse 14, And they had forgotten to take bread, and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Okay, guys all the way, right? Can't get food out of their thinking. All the wives are like, yes. And, and they begin to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Question one. Do you not yet see or understand? Question two. Do you have a hardened heart? Question three. Having eyes, do you not see? Question four. And having ears, do you not hear? Question five. And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? Question six. And they said to him, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? Question, that's question seven. And they said to him, seven. And he was trying, and he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Question Eight questions total right here as Jesus is drawing out their understanding and providing ministry clarification. And asking good questions in a discipleship context is what draws out understanding and it provides clarification. And the same is true even when facing Christ's critics. In fact, if I can revert back to our fishing illustration... Those who have gone fishing before, and this is probably for my more um, experienced fishermen, there's something that you do when you feel the fish start to nibble on the line. What, what do you do? You set the hook. Becky's got it. You can do some fishing up there in the northwest, huh? All right. Uh, that, that's exactly right. You, you set the hook, okay? And there's a reason that they do that in fishing, because you want to catch the fish first and foremost, but you also don't want the fish to swallow the hook. Okay? If the fish swallows the hook, then when you catch the fish, you have to get it in and you have to use a special tool or pliers to get it out of the stomach, pull it out, and it can get pretty tricky. But you, you want to you catch it. You feel them nibbling and you set the hook. And this is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing in our passage. He asked a few good questions. He's trying to get them to nibble on the line of truth, and then he sets the hook. Look at verses 10 and 11. Jesus says, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Okay, stop right there. So he's talking to them right here on this side. We'll just do two sides here since we got it set up that way. He's talking to them and saying, So that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, then he turns his attention and he looks at the paralytic and he says, I say to you, get up, 
pick up your pallet and go home. And here the Lord again uses a physical reality found in the miracle to authenticate and testify to the truth and the reality of his message and who he's claiming to be. Jesus is God, true God, and they needed to see it. And guess what? We're living in a world that also needs to see that Jesus Christ is God, true God. And there is no other. There is no other. And our Lord was the master at using physical realities to teach spiritual truths. And even as we go back and reflect on the account that we read in Mark 8 with all those questions, you know, he used the physical reality of the bread to, to help them see the, the, the spiritual danger of the leaven of the Pharisees. Well, we need to clarify something here before we move on because there's been much confusion about the leper being physically healed and whether it's possible that his personal sin explains the reason for his paralysis or is there another reason to be considered? What is the reason for his paralysis? There's actually an entire fraudulent ministry called the Word of Faith Movement that if time permits in a future sermon I'll share more about its deception. But for now I want to make sure that we answer the question, what is the reason for his paralysis? The answer? I don't know. Exactly. And, and nor can anyone. And as I thought about it here, there are really three possible causes for us to consider, and here they are. The first possible cause is that God caused him to be born paralyzed so that he could put his power on display. And we see an example of this in John chapter 9 when the disciples, uh, or when they came, they asked Jesus, they, there was a man born blind, and they asked the question specifically, was it because of this man's sin or because of his parents' sin that he was born blind? And you'll recall the Lord's answer to that question. He says neither, or neither, depending on which side of the country you're from again. N neither. Neither. He says it was so that God's power, it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. A second possible cause could be sin in general. And because our world is broken due to sin and filled with sin's consequences, it's possible that this man's paralysis was a consequence of sin in general. A third possible cause could be personal sin. It's possible that this man committed a personal sin that led to his paralysis. He could have been out with his buddies and maybe he got drunk and dove into a shallow lake. Maybe he committed adultery and punishment from the, from the Lord. He, was, he, he contracted some syndrome or some virus that ended with him being uh, paralyzed. Or some other scenario. I like what J.C. Rao wrote when speaking about the account of this man's paralysis. He says, Who can doubt that to the end of his days this man would thank God for his paralysis? Without it, he might probably have lived and died in ignorance and never seen Christ at all. Without it, he might have kept his sheep on the green hills of Galilee all his life long. 
and never been brought to Christ, never heard these blessed words, your sins are forgiven. That paralysis was indeed a blessing. Who can tell? But it was the beginning of eternal life to his soul. And the point is that we're not told the reason for his paralysis. And that needs to be okay. And I would ask this question in your life. What, what physical trial or what hardship has God brought your way? That you look at him and it creates doubt from within, right? Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing? Maybe even come to a place where blaming God for your circumstances, pointing at him. And yet we can look to this example of this man who was born paralyzed, who is in the presence of God and will be praising him for all eternity because of what? The momentary light affliction that God had him endure. What has been revealed is that there were two distinct miracles that took place in this account and the physical miracle was used as clarification to authenticate both the messenger and the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the fourth and final ministry factor to keep in mind when facing Christ's critics? It's the ministry conclusion and we get to end our message on a very positive note. Let's read our final verse. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Here we see the miracle completed as Mark reports that the paralytic got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. The truth and the authority of Christ's message is confirmed by the testimony of the miracle that just took place, one commentator shares, in answering the question, who can forgive sins but God alone, hearers and readers are invited to supply the name of Jesus. Jesus' victory over sickness and sin is complete. Jesus does what only God can do. And the end result of this event is echoed in the exclamation of the crowd, we have never seen anything like this as jc ryle shares let us think for a moment how great a blessing it is that jesus is our great high priest and that we know where to go for absolution we must have a priest and a sacrifice between ourselves and god conscience conscience demands an atonement for our many sins god's holiness makes it absolutely needful without an atoning priest there can be no peace of soul. Jesus Christ is the very priest that we need, mighty to forgive and pardon, tender-hearted and willing to save. And now let us ask ourselves whether we have yet known the Lord Jesus as our high priest. Have we applied to him? Have we sought absolution? If not, we are yet in our sins. May we never rest until the Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we have sat at the feet of Jesus and heard his voice saying, Son, your sins are forgiven. And friend, if you're here today and you have not had that conversation with God and you have not poured out your heart and recognized the reality of your, your numerous offenses, and it only takes one, 
to contradict the holy perfection of our great God. And you have never fell on your face and asked him to forgive you and trusted in him completely. Today would be the day. Today would be the day. The end result for this ministry conclusion is very positive. And when we minister the gospel to someone, if you're someone who's had the experience of seeing somebody's heart changed and converted, born again, and they are living for God, it is, it is miraculous. It is, it is powerful to see that transformation. It's wonderful to witness. See them respond in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it reflects a, a similar and a miraculous joy of what we've just witnessed in our account. Yet we also need to be realists as we consider the fact that this wasn't always the experience and the ministry conclusion that our Lord Jesus Christ experienced. There are accounts in the Gospels, and many are familiar with them, where what did the Jews do after he made his claim? After, in his ministry context, he brought the truth to bear. After the controversy and the truth pierced their hearts. After he provided clarification. What was the end result? They picked up stones to kill him. They insulted him. In some instances, he even had to secretly escape. As we consider the four ministry factors that have been set before us today, will we always be, may we always be willing to proclaim the truth. May we realize that in every context, as the truth is proclaimed, that there will be resistance. There will be something that will be controversial because the Lord Jesus Christ is controversial in this world, except amongst us. And that we will ask good questions and we'll provide ministry clarification and we'll set the hook with truth as we fish for men. And then we'll leave the results. We'll leave all the results in the Lord Jesus Christ's hands. And whether we face rejoicing or it's his will that we face persecution and insult, that we would continue to live for the glory of his name.